Welcome to episode 72 of Honestly Unbalanced and this is a special one. This is actually me being interviewed by the wonderful Niraj Shah. Uh, it was a podcast episode recorded in 2020, uh, kind of midway through the COVID pandemic, if there is a midway. Uh, and it was with Niraj Shah for his platform Mind Unlocked. And we chatted about how I consistently created balance from chaotic and unexpected situations, the ancient system, not yoga, that I used to help me take some action when faced with financial uncertainty during lockdown, how Uber drivers can help you become better communicators, and exactly how yoga has helped me develop my mind. So yeah, it's actually an amazing conversation with a wonderful human being. And the reason I'm putting this out there now, not only is it a nice listen, but obviously Holly and I have recently had a baby, which is 10 weeks old now. Yes, Sunny is 10 weeks old. It seems like he was born yesterday. But that means that recording podcasts has taken a little bit of a backseat for now. But we are sending out invitations this week. So expect new episodes with amazing guests very, very, very soon. As always, if you're practicing yoga and you want to get your hands on a bigger, better mat, then you can sign up, not sign up, you can buy a Lifeform yoga mat uh, with 10% off with code HUSTLER, all caps, H-U-S-L-E-R. And both Holly and I have programs coming up soon. Holly has another online sound healer teacher training starting, which you can find out all about on hollyhustler.com. And I have my a mentor program starting at the beginning of November. Uh, it's a mentor and education program for teachers. It's six months long, 100 hours, and you get a huge amount from that i think you will at least and then if you're interested in the 200 hour program i'm teaching one next year with the wonderful michael james wong and mia togo so check that out at adamhustler.com if you're interested enjoy the episode honestly unbalanced welcome to today's chat with adam hustler the thread that unites the micro discussions that you'll hear is that Adam employs a number of less well-known techniques to continuously create balance in often chaotic and unexpected circumstances. We discuss the ancient tool that helped Adam to take massive action in the face of major financial uncertainty and stress when lockdown kicked in. And no, it's not yoga, although practicing yoga almost certainly helped him. Adam shares the new lockdown habit he's created to maintain his mental well-being and what his current morning routine looks like too. And we also explore the chaotic circumstances in Adam's life at the time that he was first taking a deeper dive into meditation and how that played out. We talk about our love of coffee and that even though a coffee at 9pm in the evening doesn't stop either of us from easily being able to fall asleep, we share the reasons why we still don't have our caffeine that late in the day. And you may not expect it from this chat, but we also get into how Uber drivers can help you become a clearer communicator and you can even hear Adam quoting Shakespeare. We also, as usual, talk about technology habits and how Adam manages his phone. And we stumble upon an app that it's so important to me that it's on my home screen. And no, it's not Instagram. And of course, we explore the link between physical yoga and mental well-being and why so many yoga folks rave about the mental benefits. So let me introduce Adam to you. Drawing from a variety of lives lived off the mat, Adam brings a unique perspective to those who seek more from yoga than making pretty shapes. He offers creative, effective and clearly sequenced teachings that focus on balancing flexibility and strength physically and mentally. Educated by globally renowned teachers, including Jason Crandell and Michael Stone, Adam specializes in a signature style of alignment-based vinyasa, fueled by a fascination with anatomy and a desire to ask why. Adam leads workshops and trainings and festivals around the world and has thousands of teaching hours under his belt. So get ready we cover a lot of ground, and as always, the focus is on practical tools and ideas that you can implement right away. I hope you enjoy our chat. Let's join it here. Welcome to the show, Adam. How has lockdown been for you? 
Do you know, I was quite excited when it started. I naively thought, okay, this is two weeks and I can do all the things that I've been missing out on. I thought, I've got money in the bank. We should be fine. I will learn how to play my hang drum. I will read more books. I'll do more yoga myself every day. We just got a kitten at that point as well. So we just thought, okay, we're in for a chilled experience. And then things changed and it looked like it could extend. And it's been quite unusual for us because we've had in a sense, a lot taken away in terms of job and career. My wife and I, we're both yoga teachers and rely on teaching yoga as a source of income. And that, of course, overnight changed. You know, no money was coming in. All of my international commitments and retreats and conferences were cancelled. Neither of us could get to studios. And we became a little bit concerned. Like Holly, luckily, was able mm. to uh, get a little bit of government support with my business setup. I could get nothing really, or I could pay myself a nominal amount. So I really had almost no source of income. And so rather than within that first week or two thinking, okay, this is a nice break, a nice chance to reset, I had to work out how to make money. And one thing that's quite strange is almost all of this year before lockdown, I was thinking to myself, wouldn't it be nice if we could all agree to have a day off? Wouldn't that be lovely <laughs> if everyone could just agree to have one day off work? And I guess I got my wish, but it didn't quite manifest in the way I thought because rents were still due to be paid and mortgages still had to be paid. Uh, and so my, my shift, again, as I said, turned to making money somehow. Luckily, I had a social media following to leverage. So my go-to was immediately just putting classes on Instagram and seeing if people would donate and join coincidentally it came at a point where we were launching an online platform this was actually we were thinking about it and had bought the equipment to do it just before lockdown and then lockdown gave us uh, the kick to really get on it so within a few days of lockdown we did have this online platform up and running and filming high quality content and still to this day you know it's what three months in it's still a little bit of a hustle as it were to make sure there is at least some money coming in somehow, undoubtedly earning less. But that's, I guess that's just one element of lockdown, the money. And we're lucky that we know that studios will open, retreats will continue. And I am to some degree a popular teacher. So I have faith that I will be returning to paid work. But then of course, there has been the other elements to it, the being in a one bedroom flat in Highgate, so not central London, but not too far off. Inner London, though, built up area. Yeah, built up area. Yeah, we have a little bit of greenery around. Yeah, you've got some greenery similar to us, yeah. But ultimately, it is a one bedroom flat with two people in it, both trying to teach live classes online. And then Holly does sound healing and sound journeys, which of course means if I'm in the house, I need to be quiet. And between us, probably teaching four or five classes a day. So it, it is quite tight. Because almost when one of us is teaching a class, the other person has to just be in the bedroom, sitting on the bed, <laughs> you know, in in, mm-hmm. in 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 silence. So that has been that has been interesting in itself. And also, we we had a kitten during lockdown, as I mentioned. The kitten sadly has passed away, just a neurological condition that was un- unknown and unexpected. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, no, and it was nothing to do with breeder or like it was just a unique mutation. But regardless, we had this kitten to look after as well. And the kitten was a bit of a savior because it gave us not just a distraction, but reminded us to try and live in the moment a little bit more. That sounds very cliche, but they're often in today's world full of distraction. And especially when we're not just working, but we're living work in lockdown. Both of us are are living our job from almost six o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. We are living what we do. It's very hard to be present. And actually having this kitten and spending time cuddling or playing with a kitten actually just dragged you to this very moment. There are very few things that do that for me. Let's pause for a second. There's a couple of things I want to pick up. First of all, I'm with you that animals live in the moment. So if you have a pet, you really... It's not just about being in the moment with them, I think. I mean, of course, they drag you into the present, but they themselves live in the present. But something else that you talked about that I want to touch on and delve into a little bit is that at the start of lockdown, I saw you move very, very quickly to set up the online platform that you had had in mind for a while. Mm. And I remember being so impressed that I think in the space of about two weeks, you had the platform up and running 
obviously in the face of this huge uncertainty and the the dawning i think over that certainly that first week or two that actually this is a more serious situation than any of us thought it could have been when perhaps before we'd heard about a virus on the other side of the world so what i want to delve into is what was it in your mentality that made you and holly take that sort of huge action and i'm trying to delve into what was different in your mentality that got you to do those things i think for me part of it is my mind works at a million miles an hour in the sense of in any situation i rehearse every scenario almost some of that is maybe linked to my love of stoic philosophy which i i got quite into it as it were when i was 18 so long before it was fashionable to be into i don't think we've talked about this but i've never studied stoicism but i do love it because Ever since I was a small child, I have been very deeply logical. And it's only in later years that I've realized that that is Stoic philosophy. But yeah, let's come back to Stoicism. You got into it when you were 18. Yeah, and and, and, and later realized it's very similar to a lot of Buddhist philosophy. But yeah, I got into it when I was 18 because I was in a situation where... Actually, I got more into it at 21. 18, I read it. 21, I returned to it and used it to guide me. And that was because I'd I'd left university. I studied law at Durham. I didn't have much career direction. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I spent most of my university doing charity work, actually, uh, and working with various nonprofits. And I'd had a breakup. And I I was looking for something to help me through and work work out a practical philosophy to help me live my life. And... I read, I think, Marcus Aurelius' Meditation. Meditations, yeah. Which then developed into Seneca's letters and the like. And I, I really adopted many of those strategies, I guess, in quite formative years. And you know, something that is talked about in Stoicism is almost a negative visualization, a a rehearsing perhaps the bad things that could happen. The two benefits of rehearsing the bad things, as it were, is number one, if those things ever do happen you have prepared for them. And number two, it makes you appreciate what you have in the moment a little bit more. And ever since that, in any given situation, my mind is working out every possible scenario. Sometimes this is good, sometimes it is bad. Because it, it means that I'm often aware of the hyper aware of the negative, which is kind of so different to my wife, who's just always positive. But when the lockdown started, I was thinking, you know, how long could it go on for? How would I make money? Will there be a shift in what happens to yoga studios? Will yoga studios even open again? Uh, will people want yoga? Do I see, still want to be in London? Do I want to live in a city like this? Maybe if I want to move out of London, how would I make that work financially? How can I? All of these things are going through my mm-hmm. head, like every possible scenario. Uh, and so I thought, you know, ultimately, this has made me realize there is a high chance that I will likely desire to move out of London. That's not to say not have anything to do with it, but not live in one of the London yeah. zones. And I thought I, I would still like to make money. So it would make sense to have an online platform. I thought if if I'm going to do it, you may as well do it properly and treat it as a long-term investment. So the day before shops were closed, I was running around getting my hands on every bit of equipment I could. Literally running around London, buying an amazing camera, and, and learning, just walking around, reading articles on my phone, calling friends, getting advice. And so now we've got a very high tech setup in the living yeah, you've room. You've almost got like a online studio at home. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We've got a, a very good setup. And I bought just bought it all as quick as I could. And then maybe the first week or two of lockdown, I got my head down and worked out how to make a new website, how on earth I could make it membership-based and how to give certain mm-hmm. people access to different things. And I had no idea. I'd never done anything like that before. And just through lots of research, lots of stalking of people and lots of late nights and doing graphic design, I got it done. But that, that first week or two, I was awake till maybe four o'clock every day, which isn't good, but I just thought I need to get to some degree of first mover advantage, which I did. <laughs> mm-hmm and just get something professional out there ASAP. And a big motivator for me was I'm not just doing this as a short-term response. I'm doing it as a long-term solution, as a long-term backup. Once I, if so I, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like the thinking had been done and you were going down this road, but what the pandemic did 
was basically put it into sharp focus that this is now the number one thing to get done and get done quickly. Indeed. Would that be fair? Yeah, that, no, that would be fair. It was, it was something I, just, I, I needed to get done ASAP. Very interesting. Is there anything that you've changed in terms of your various rituals to look after your own mental well-being in lockdown? It's, it's been very hard. I, one of my biggest rituals in daily life was just making sure I walk as much as possible. So I'm the kind of person that teaches... Yeah, because you walk and bike between your classes normally all yeah, over London. Yeah, yeah. so I, I teach maybe 20 classes a week. Most weekends I'm teaching in other countries. And I, where possible I walk, you know, get off a few tube stop early, divert to walk through parks. It's not particularly efficient, but I enjoy it. So if I'm teaching in another country, often I will get the train into the city and then spend an hour exploring that city as I walk to my Airbnb. And that's just lovely alone time for me to just gain, you know, gain control of my thoughts. And I've missed that. And I just being, I've, I've all, I'm someone that likes, not likes being alone, but has no problem being alone at all. And mm-hmm. actually, yeah. Uh, just important today, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wonderful company yeah. for myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to some degree. I think in this situation where we've all been forced at home until now, when lockdown looks like it's starting to ease a bit more, and it has eased over the last few weeks, but it's so important to, I think, to A, learn how to be by ourselves and whether we're with housemates or family or whether we're with our romantic partner or it doesn't really matter. I think those natural bits of alone time that would happen when you're both going to a different job or have different physical things going on and you're not having them anymore, that separation is actually incredibly important because I think the lack of that is what causes challenges especially at a time of global crisis when we're all being triggered by things that don't normally trigger us so have you replaced that walking ritual with anything else or are you now doing it in a different way so i i have tried i think everyone is in a different situation in lockdown you know the, from the people being followed who might you know be looking after their kids mainly to the people i guess like some of us who on a daily basis, having to respond to the changing situation in order to try and make a living. So I think it's been very hard to find consistency and stability. Like every week is very different. And what I'm focusing on each week is very different. So it's been very hard to get routine per se, but we certainly every day, Holly and I have made sure we've gone for a walk in green space. That has been very important yeah, for us. So important. Leaving, phone, yeah. leaving phones behind, just walking in green space. And it might be a 10-minute walk, a 15-minute walk, sometimes an hour walk, but making sure that exists in our life. That is one thing that we've. I think we've missed three days. And often those, be, those have been when we've been in a car somewhere uh, and, and we've just forgot to walk because we've had a car journey. Well, that's also very important from a circadian rhythm and sleep point of view, which is something that pre-lockdown I wasn't doing that on purpose I was doing it naturally and then in the early weeks of lockdown I would spend three four days inside working head down doing what I can and then my sleep started getting disrupted and actually we we covered it really well on episode two of this podcast to biohacking your circadian rhythm but that one of the big pieces that was missing which I now do I don't ever miss a day or very, very rarely miss a day is that I make sure I'm outside for at least 30 minutes as early in a day as possible by, by midday at the latest. And it's because it teaches our body what is day, what is night, as well as all of the other benefits of vitamin D and, you know, London's freshest air for decades that, that we're getting to enjoy. So, okay. So, so day, daily walking together, daily which, walking, is, which is great. Yeah. Ha- having a relatively consistent sleep schedule that again, f- tries to follow the rhythm in that we don't actually have curtains and we've never had curtains in the bedroom. No one's overlooking us. There's nothing creepy going on, but we, we're lucky. <laughs> we kind of look out <laughs> on, on, on greenery, but yeah, we've I'm never had clarify. <laughs> we've never had curtains and so we wake up pretty much with the birds singing but often we wake up about five have a little bit of a snooze and actually get up at about six we go downstairs normally without phones you know, some, some of them a little bit naughty but normally without phones and just have a coffee you know be calm sit play with the cat see how she is feed her then evening we go to bed pretty much as it's getting dark and that we're, we're normally in bed by about oh, 10 o'clock. Oh, so you o'clock. must be quite early then. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so we, we're, we're in bed often 10 o'clock, pretty much as late as it gets, maybe, you know, quarter past 10 at a push, depending on 
when if when the cat was having her medicine if we if we could get it in her if she wasn't running away from us but yeah so we we we've maintained very good sleep uh and that I was is going something- to make um I was going to make a sarcastic comment that's so rock and roll but actually now i think the most rock and roll thing that you can do is go to sleep at like 8 p.m that in my life yeah, that's badass. an absolute luxury <laughs> and and it's, it just feels so wrong it's right and, and then you feel amazing the next day and so many times it's been nine o'clock and holly and i've looked at each other and thought can can we can we go to bed now and the only thing that's actually stopped us is the fact that the cat needed medicine at 10 o'clock Otherwise, I think many times you probably would have gone to bed at about nine o'clock. And recently, thanks to your recommendation, I bought one of the uh, Manta sleep masks. Uh, oh, I love that. Which, which has been got, it was it was stolen straight away, right? Yeah, Holly stole it, stole it immediately, but then I persuaded her to give it back. And I haven't been using it every night because I'm blessed with the ability to fall asleep. Another thing I've been doing is limiting coffee intake. Because I used to teach... How does that work? So I used to... As in, as in what, how do you limit yeah, it? Yeah, because I, I used to have coffee just all day. As in, and I just yeah, labeled. You and I like a coffee, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I labeled myself as one of those people that could drink coffee at 10 o'clock and still sleep well, which I could. Probably not good sleep, but I would always sleep well nonetheless. And because I was teaching all through the day and then often flying to another country in the next morning, I would, I would t- have coffee all day and I'd have coffee almost or some kind of stimulant before every class. And then now I'm limiting it to not a huge limitation, but I don't have it after two o'clock. So I'll have two mm. to three cups, but nothing after two o'clock. This is interesting because we're similar. I can have a coffee at nine or 10 and it won't stop me sleeping, but I do not have coffee after 12. But I'm interested in, given that it doesn't affect you, what's the reason you don't have it after? And then read, I'll share why, why mine is. I read a book that actually you recommended to Holly, then Holly subsequently bought it for my birthday called Make Time or Making Time. Oh, it's such a good book. Really light. I think I- Re- yeah, I've really light, e- uh, easy to t- read. Book. Time and time and how to spend it. Is yeah, that the one? yes, by James uh, Warman. Yeah, we'll stick it in the show notes. Yeah, two, I think it's by two people who used to work for I think Apple and Google or something. Ah, no, no, no. Okay, sorry, that's a different book, which is also very good. The one you're talking about is Make Time. Yes, and yeah, it's by, by the uh, Google guys who are working on YouTube and Gmail and yeah. that sort of thing. And it's very, it's a very light-hearted book, and it's full of little tips. Yeah. And they mentioned working out the coffee intake that's best for you and some of their strategies so i didn't really look into the whys except for you know they're mentioning that if you have it very late it's very hard for it to be broken down in time and there was some science there that i resonated with in the moment but then immediately forgot but it was enough to persuade me in the moment that it's the right right thing to do i I do that sometimes as well where i'll I'll make a decision based on the information but then i don't retain the information because i know it's not that important (laughs) so similarly the the reason I don't, because like you, I'm not very sensitive to caffeine, so it doesn't make me feel awake and it doesn't stop me going to sleep, but I like the taste and I like the ritual. So in fact, what, what I did about 30 minutes before we recorded it and we're recording in the early evening is I had a decaf, which I don't do, do very often, but if I feel like I want the taste of coffee. But the reason is because I heard Matthew Walker speak and he was talking about the half-life of coffee is so long that it will basically spike cortisol in your system several hours after you've had it. I'm going to get this wrong, but the quarter life of a cup of coffee is something like eight or nine or ten hours. Mm. So it's a bit like having a quarter of a cup of coffee the moment before you go to bed, if you go to bed at 10 p.m. But the point is this, that that cortisol in a system really negatively affects the quality of sleep. So like you, I wouldn't have trouble getting to sleep. But then when I'd look at my data in the morning or at some point the next day, I could see that actually I'm not getting the quality of sleep that I want. And quality of sleep has become really important to me in terms of just optimizing my energy and long, long-term long brain health and all of those kind of things. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. I think I think that reason is valid. And I I would like to limit it to 12 o'clock. I think two o'clock for me is reasonable because I I think cramming too much in before 12 doesn't work for me yet. But I imagine I'll get to that stage where I can rein it in more and more. It's going to be interesting to see if I fall into old habits when I'm back on the road again, as it were, and hopefully, hopefully not. It's going to be really interesting to see what that transition's like for for all of us because I think for some of us, we've had a chance to have that bit of a pause and reset a few things. But 
now we're starting to have bits of normality or, or will do over the coming weeks. It will be interesting to see how that plays out. I want to get a bit more into you and your story. You mentioned Durham University and you mentioned that's where you studied for international listeners. That's one of the very top universities in the UK. Adam is smarter than he looks. Especially at the moment. I've got a goatee-like thing yeah. on my face at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think you've been playing with some glasses as well. Very intelligent. Tell me, what, what happened next and how did that lead to you doing what you do now? So I went to university to study law and I, I, I went to the kind of school where you study law or medicine or went to Oxford and Cambridge to do something more unique if that was your if that was your vibe and so i went down the law route and i'm i'm pretty sure that if i had been interviewed by a university i wouldn't have got in because in reality i had no desire to do law however durham was one of the leading universities that actually did a completely separate legal aptitude test instead of an interview and I, I was quite good at that. And I passed that test with flying colors, you know, an ability to analyze text and like, like very elaborate comprehension. And so I got a place at East University to study law, still didn't really want to study law. <laughs> and while I was there, I actually spent most of my time boxing, but also doing work for various charities uh, that included working in a young offenders institution, which is not really what it's called anymore, and working with underprivileged teenagers in Hartlepool and Sunderland. And I I decided that would be my career. I was going to work in nonprofit management of some kind. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I imagine myself of a CEO of Save the Children or a, <laughs> or a like, yeah. and that was direction of travel. And while I was at university, I dabbled with yoga a little bit, not a lot. And then I actually spent a gap year how did that happen? Do you remember what led you to trying you yoga. boxing and that kind of thing? Yeah. So, yeah, so why did you try it? Durham was a collegiate university, but Oxford and Cambridge are collegiate in that your academic tutors are in your college. In Durham, you had colleges, but they were very much based around extracurricular activities. So a lot of these charities I just spoke about were set up by people in my small college. And they had wonderful welfare weeks and they always had events going on. And I think as part of a welfare week that perhaps was put on during ex- uh, one of the revision periods, I, d- I tried a yoga class kind of for a laugh. I think my ex might have dragged me there. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I think maybe another time it was done in, in a fashion show, as in the warm up for a fashion show that I was partaking mm-hmm. in. <laughs> but the, I, I guess I changed a little bit more I I, I took sabbatical where I was still at the university, but running one of their bars. Uh, I stayed there because I kind of lacked direction and my ex was there because she was in the year below me. So I thought I'll spend a year getting some business skill by being essentially given a business that I can run for the year. And I learned Mm -hmm. so much at that point, but I also put on about 20 kilos and eventually split up with my ex. And I, I was a bit of a physical state, although I was very strong. And again, by the time that ended, I lacked direction still. And I decided to go on a walk called the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James. So it's a a relatively famous pilgrimage route that I guess traditionally starts wherever you want. But a common place to start if you're going for the full pilgrimage is the border of France in a place called Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. And then you walk typically across northern Spain until you arrive at Santiago. And so I decided relatively last minute to book a flight, pack a bag and walk across Spain alone. And at that point, I, I know I'd started to read some inspirational books like the, the Paolo Cahello books and, the, and I think Dan Millman's Way of the Peaceful Warrior. So, the, you know, the kind of inspirational books someone in their early 20s or late teens <laughs> kind of reads. But I was reading those kind of books and I was actually starting to question who I was, what I wanted to become. And I remember meeting just the most incredible people on that walk. You know, everyone had a reason for being there from someone that lost their family, for someone that just was doing it for completely religious reasons. But everyone had a story, often not a happy story. And, and I, I grew a lot just by meeting those people and chatting to them every evening. And because I was walking at a high speed, I only ever spent an evening typically with people. Just one evening mm-hmm. to get to all, or even maybe just walking with them for 10 miles. And then we leave each other and never see each other again. Uh, That was fairly transformative. Moved back to Birmingham to work in charity. 
did a lot of boxing. And I was reading Stoic philosophy at the time, and that was really grounding me. There's a book by William Irvine called The Guide to a Good Life, which again is like surged in popularity uh, now. Now Stoicism has been popularized more by the likes of Tim Ferriss, etc. But I read that book mm-hmm. at the time and the other Stoic literatures. And then I, I decided that I needed to do something to get to know people. And that was the thing that was missing in my life friends because i'd moved back to birmingham which is where i'm from but all of my friends had gone off elsewhere and uh, most of my life was then outside work was spent in a boxing club with people very different to me and i really had no friends in birmingham at least so i thought well what can i do to gain people that i might have something in common with there was no philosophy community and so i decided to start doing yoga more seriously and it developed into a daily practice and in terms of making friends, that didn't work. I didn't make any friends doing doing yoga. <laughs> but the time before and after the class was just utterly magical. And I'd be, magical is the wrong word, but I learned so much. I'd always get to class maybe 15, 20 minutes early and just sit there and practice some of the techniques I'd been learning in my stoic books and practicing negative visualization and the like before the yoga class had started. Then I'd practice a class then I'd leave class and purposely walk to as far a station as I could towards my home. I wouldn't get in the nearest one. I just, depending on how I felt, I'd walk as far away as I could, then then jump on, on a train. And just that time of reflection completely changed who I was and where I wanted to go. So a combination of that Camino de Santiago and and the, the beginning of a yoga practice was very formative for me and maybe aged me spiritually beyond my years. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, And I will say that five, ten minutes before a yoga class starts, in my experience, because it's a big part of my life as well, although I don't go to many public classes anymore, that five to ten minutes is so underrated because Mm. if that becomes a regular part of the practice, which it also became for me, I would find that Often, that was the first time in the day that I'd allowed myself to be alone with my thoughts and let things catch up and just have a bit of grounding time, if you like, instead of rushing into the class with barely one minute to go and then coming Mm. in flustered and then having to spend the first 10 minutes actually settling down in a physiological way. I think I stumbled upon that by being early for my first studio class my and, and incidentally i don't know if you remember this yeah. but my, my first studio class in six years was actually your class by pure coincidence mm-hmm. and i think I'd, I'd got there a little bit early because i got the class time wrong uh-huh. and as a result i was there about 15 minutes early and i realized that actually if i'm going to go to the trouble of going to yoga classes you know which involves quite a bit of disruption to the day then I'm also going to go to the trouble to get there a little bit early so I can actually make the most of the class and get the most benefit out of it. So that became this nice little bubble. So it's really interesting that you discovered that as well. And it is, it's very rare in our lives. We get a chance to not have any phones, not have any distractions and be in what often is a very relaxing room, you know, decorated to be relaxing with nice smells and usually quite quiet or soft music yeah ideally not allowed to talk and as you say get a chance to just see how you are and check in and often there'll be times in my life where for whatever reason i haven't practiced asana for a little while or you know a proper asana class or at least maybe a class that hasn't just been a functional class to get more to remind myself i need to be stretchy and you know i'll be on my mat before that public class just moving very slightly and i and i remind myself this is what it's all about it is this practice of self inquiry and it doesn't need to be a formal practice it could just be a little bit of movement in the four corners of a mat in that quiet space where there are no or at least minimal external stimuli uh, and that's the beginning of the practice Absolutely. So we'll fast forward a little bit. And today, I I can say this because I know that you won't, but I consider Adam to be one of Europe's leading teachers, teachers workshops around the world and a hugely popular teacher here in London. I want to explore the link between yoga and mental well-being because so many practitioners 
talk about the mental benefits. And I think so many folks, after they've done yoga for a little while, start talking about how the mental benefits outweigh the physical. For a complete newcomer, would you be able to draw a bit of light on what is it that happens that might do that, either through your own experience or through the lens of your students? Yeah, I think the mental benefit aspect is very interesting. I think often in the past, when I started yoga, a lot of people started yoga because something was going wrong in their life. They were off balance in some way. In the last few years, a lot of people start yoga purely for the physical benefits. In the Instagram era, you know, I'm part of the Instagram world, but in the Instagram era, in classes full of very dynamic practices with incredible looking poses and i think often it's sometimes the desire to do the physical and the desire to find and some kind of objective success in a yoga practice that actually stops the mental benefits from really hitting home i think people just often get very attached to completing a pose completing an asana i think if you go into it or at least over time you you realize that actually it is a practice of self-inquiry using the body as a vehicle then the the mental benefits are are endless and so many people have experienced that why why do i think they are there i think a, a big part of it firstly you're in a quiet space you're in a quiet space where no one's really watching you you can't win you can't lose you're not performing you're just you in your body so it's a kind of a relatively natural state to be in and it's something that's very rare for us it's very rare that we get the chance to look inside then as you practice, you're very much in the moment. And as I said, we talked about animals at the beginning. It's very rare that we are actually as human beings in the moment. It are, we kind of often call it in yoga, chitraviti, this idea of this wandering mind that thinks about the future and the past and how we drift. Like we will start thinking about uh, what we're doing tonight. And then suddenly five minutes later, we're thinking about what we would be doing tonight if we had a hypothetical dog that we don't yet have and who would be looking after it and who would be babysitting it. Like our mind just goes off to some other place so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a yoga practice brings you in just by observing the subtleties of what's happening in your physical body or, or, or in your breath. And as a teacher, although I don't necessarily teach things that aren't necessarily overtly spiritual, I think by giving people the opportunity to look inside through me giving very specific verbal cues, that kind of does the same work. And it's not for everyone, but I think often sometimes things that are spoken as being overtly spiritual actually distract people from looking inside. They feel they need to be something else. You know, the amount of people I see sitting at the end of class trying to contort their legs into a lotus pose because it looks more spiritual or wearing the mala beads because they want to wear the costume of advanced spirituality. I do really think sometimes many people that gets in the way, but having a very simple, humble practice of self-inquiry using the body leads to some very deep things. Hmm. Yeah, I concur with all of that. And I think it's worth also saying that everybody's on a journey. And what I've noticed with the yoga world, if you're open minded, then it can really help you to develop some of those mental things around self inquiry. But again, how it could be that part of the journey is coming to a place where you are even open minded. So I. I, I get it because I think I see people go through phases where they will be wearing the spiritual costume and especially at the start when you want to belong and you think this is what you need to do and this is how you need to look and this is how you need to act and then potentially moving to a place where you start realizing all the things that you're getting from that activity that uh, that mean that you start dropping some of those things mm. and I I tr- I like to speak to Uber drivers. When I broke my foot a few years ago, Uber drivers became my social group. And often they would ask me, you know, inevitably yoga would come up and they would ask mm-hmm. me about yoga. And of course, so this is, I call this kind of the Uber driver speech. It's almost like the elevator pitch. What would you say to an Uber driver who wants to know what you do and how you're doing it, but you haven't got long to tell them and maybe unfairly, but 
there's a presumption that they probably don't know much about what you're doing. Uh, that's not their world. Because of course, with Uber drivers, you went, you can, you're, you're, you're with anyone who knows who they are. And so many of them would ask me, and I would describe it as an antidote. I would say in its simplest, most accessible form, a yoga practice is an antidote to your life. If you spend all of your life sitting at a steering wheel, rounding your back, physically, a yoga practice is an antidote to that. You can open up your chest. You can start to sit a little bit taller. I'd say equally, if your mind is constantly wondering, a yoga practice can be a wonderful antidote to that wondering mind to bring you to the moment. Uh, and they would say, well, what is yoga? I say, for me, yoga really is a practice of balance. And that that practice of balance happens in many ways. Of course, we can talk about balance in terms of flexibility and strength in the physical body. It's not, again, that my point is it's not a stretching class. <laughs> it's a practice of balance. Mm-hmm. But then also in your mind, it's not this practice of being joyful all the time or equally being mel- melancholic. It's a practice of staying on the middle path and being able to return to that middle path as you need. And that's not to say we're not feeling things, but we feel things and then we let go of those things and come back to the middle. And the more you practice yoga, I believe the more quickly you are able to come back to that middle. That's not to say the ups and downs won't happen, but you're able to return to a more centered place after you've felt what you need to feel. Yeah, so it's about, I think, firstly, changing the relationship between you and what's happening so that you can have that bit of separation. And secondly, it's developing the mental muscle, I suppose, of being able to come back to that equilibrium, which is quite a useful point because it seeks nicely into the next thing I wanted to delve into, which is your experiences around meditation. I know I know that you've done a lot in this space, both personally and professionally as well. So um, I had never re- was really taught to do meditation in any of my initial yoga teacher trainings. And I do think that most yoga teachers aren't actually taught how to teach meditation. I would agree with that, having been on the other side where I've taught meditation to so many experienced yoga teachers who will privately tell me that actually this wasn't really covered very well in my training. Now I don't feel confident with it. So I can absolutely concur with that. Mm. And I actually ended up learning more from someone called Michael Stone, who, who's passed away mm. now, sadly. Michael was a Buddhist teacher and a psychotherapist. Very intelligent man, has written numerous books. Uh, an unusual character, but just super, super intelligent and very engaging. Uh, and, and would call it more mindfulness than meditation. He was a teacher of modern mindfulness. And I did a, a relatively intense course over the course of six months or seven months with him and it was my first encounter really with proper meditation I to a degree for out of my depth you know there were some yoga teachers there but there were also some much older very experienced meditators psychologists mm-hmm. psychotherapists bereavement counselors unfortunately that happened I did that an odd time in my life in that my dad had just been diagnosed with with terminal cancer he's passed away now and lots of trouble with my ex uh, who I was with at the time. There was just a lot going on there. And so I I found it very hard to be present. But nonetheless, I learned a huge amount and equally learned how hard it really was. You know, it is for many people a very challenging thing just to be still uh, and be physically, it's a hard thing to do, but just to be with your own thoughts for a while as well. I agree. We had homework. And I did that homework, which is meditating a certain amount amount a day. Uh, and since then, I, I've delved into other meditation teachers. I did a course recently with Jack Cornfield and Tara Barch mm-hmm. online. Done lots. I, I still, to this day, find it quite hard not to meditate per se, but I find it hard to make space for it. Often because most of my days I'm out and about literally almost all day, every day. And it's very hard for me to find any kind of quiet space. And often I would leave my house very early morning and, and come back late at night. So there is some honesty in me saying that it is, I find it hard. But when I'm in it and when I have a good stretch of meditating daily, it's overwhelming. The, the effect it has is overwhelming, just a sense of, of balance. It's an ability to observe 
to uh, to observe what is happening in my mind. It's almost like you're stepping back a little bit more. I think I'm relatively proficient at that anyway, due to the experiences I've had and to a degree some of the traumas I've been through. And I've there was a period in my life which was, I guess, a, a real period of growth where in 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 the space of I think two or three months, you know, I split it with my ex in a very fairly hard way. There was just lots going on and lots of arguments. She. Yeah, she took my dog. My my father was very ill by that point and then passed away. I had been attacked from behind after teaching a yoga class when people were drunk. I and my eye was cut open. I then mm-hmm. broke my foot and then was trying to teach around London on crutches. And and I remember this so well because all of this happened in the space of two or three months, right? Less than that, really. Like the the bulk yeah. of it happened in a space of a month, really. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, but then of course, I just, I just remember it because every time I saw you, there was, um, <laughs> there was, I, I remember saying, I think you really need to write a blues song now. My philosophy of things will get better was really being tested. Yeah. And it was, uh, that was such a period of growth for me just to observe, you know, to observe what was going on in my head. And I feel so thankful that my yoga practice was there and my practice of, of balance because I started to realize that no matter what happens to me, the big stuff happening to me, but even on the other side, the exciting stuff like teaching in the design museum to 200 people or the, you know, these big moments. Yeah, amazing. I never got too excited or too sad. Of course, there were moments, but I, I was able to find an evenness through all of these things. And that sounds a little bit depressing that I never got very sad or very happy. But I was, was going to say, do you feel that you might have missed on the celebration on that or or is it that you did have the celebration but you just didn't get carried away with it i think it's an appreciation of it but not getting caught up in it and not getting caught up in your own not getting caught up in the hype and not being addicted to that and realizing realizing that if your life and if your contentment is dependent on your happiness then it's very unlikely you're going to be content because those happy moments, really happy moments or ecstatic moments happen so rarely. So I guess what I want is from my life is to be content. I don't want to be happy or sad. I want contentment. I will add if that contentment or is dependent on happiness that comes from external events, that then it's just the basic maths is you're not going to win exactly. that one. You're not going to be, you're not going to be content. So I want, I want my contentment to be something that is separate from my happiness in a sense, or is it at least not dependent on my happiness? I want to be able to be a solid foundation and observe what's happening in the world with just a calm, open heart, steady breath. And I, I, I think, and that's where I really realize that, the effect that a yoga practice and yoga teaching and being part of of that knowledge really was having an effect on me and i I, long ago i let go my attachment to me being able to do hard asana i started to appreciate the effect that yoga was actually having on my day-to-day life and who i was as a person and that has come from having a long-term practice not mm. not from coming from being you know, doing lots of training, but that has come from having a, a long term yoga practice. So it's manifested over time in different ways. Yeah. From asana, it's, it's been what eleven, twelve years for you, yeah, now, maybe yeah, more. Yeah, but and but and that yeah. yoga practice can be asana, it can be meditation, it can be kirtan, yeah. But it can just well, this be is the thing live, actually. There's one um, more point that it can, it can be trying to live your life based on the principles of yoga, and I think that's a big one for me. Living my life. And observing my mind on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, with the principles of yoga, which also kind of do overlap with the principles of Buddhism and Stoicism. Very good point. Very well made. Going back to your talking about contentment and happiness being two different things. I think for me, in my earlier days, I didn't know that there was a separation there. I do now. And I think of it, I think I say fulfillment where you say contentment, but I think Mm. we're talking about the The same same thing. thing. And for me, it was this idea that fulfillment and happiness and fun are three different things that can overlap sometimes, but 
I want to have as much fun and as much happiness in my life as I possibly can, but I just don't mistake them for the things that are going to fulfill me. And I think I, you know, because of my history and because of my near-death experiences and trauma and all of those things, I want to have as much fun as I possibly can every day, but I don't take my sense of contentment or happiness from that fun. I just recognize them for what they are. And I'm not sure I'm doing the best job of necessarily explaining those differences, but the starting point is really to understand that there are differences. Mm. But there is also an argument to be said for making, changing your benchmark for what makes you happy. As in someone say, the only thing that makes me happy is going out with friends or watching a show. But if you can live a life where just waking up and looking out the window makes you happy, just sitting down with your partner, just sitting down Mm. and just reading together can make you happy. I think that's something that we can all work on is changing the things that make us happy and equally reining in the things that make us feel very bad and almost trying to just be yeah less reactive to the bad stuff and and our cat as i said passed away today but it's this is where my thinking mind is quite useful because in the space of her passing away i'm thinking of both I'm very happy that she's not suffering anymore. I'm very happy that of all the owners, she had us that had adequate insurance and were with her every day and had love. I'm also very Mm -hmm. sad because life cut short, but then I'm also very happy because we won't have to tie our whole life around her medical routine in the future. Just all these, Mm -hmm. it's being able to kind of rationalize things and be logical and then find yeah. balance through that. And I think that luckily is what I've been able to do through my yoga practice is make, mm. is find a space where lots of things make me content and I'm not attached to finding the things that give me extreme happiness. If, if anything, I've lowered the bar to what could be providing happiness and the things that could be very sad, I can then rationalize them to, re- to make them really what they are and just observe them from a, a steadier place that all makes so much sense it and and this explains why you're so balanced as well because now i'm starting to understand the thought process and the experiences that have shaped that there was one thing i wanted to say which is that you talk about lowering that bar for what makes you happy and i think it's really important to make the point that lowering that bar doesn't mean lowering standards it's actually about changing perception so for me when you were talking about if you can be happy with these simple things every day without fail for the last 10 years and three months and whatever it is since I had my stroke. When my feet hit the ground, when I get out of bed, I am ecstatic because I can walk because that was almost taken away from me. And then the first thing I do without fail is I step out of the bedroom into the other room open a window, stick my head out and and stare out, even if it's raining, unless it's raining really heavily. And I I realize that I can think. And that's the second thing that makes me ecstatic because that was almost taken away from me as well in terms of having such a severe brain injury. And it means that no matter what else happens in a day, I've already experience that type of Mm. joy and contentment but this is the point this is not it's not about lowering standards and let's just settle for less because i think that's important here it's not about that at all it's about understanding the perception that the fact that i get to wake up in a flat in a city like london and have money in the bank and food in the kitchen puts me in in the demographic lottery winners of the world Mm. because that's not the reality for for actually the vast majority of the world. And that realization was part of the key to understanding that actually we have lots of reasons to be content, but we just normalize them because we start taking things for granted. It's a natural tendency because it's just the way that our brains work. It's all linked to our survival mechanism and what we pay attention to. And secondly, it's to do with this social media 24-7 news and Instagram and reality tv and overnight success type of world that we Mm. live in which is not a representation of the reality of life so yeah they've gone off on one a little bit but that's my take on what you're talking about and uh, yeah i think these different strategies work for different people i think that yeah as you say the idea of realizing how lucky you are works for some some people really well that's that never that's never really worked for me so much not that i don't think i'm lucky, I'm lucky. i definitely am mm-hmm. but that was never a, 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 a fact that really worked for me what, what worked for me was this idea that 
I really don't have that much control over anything. I really, as in, but also you don't, I, I haven't, I didn't have control about being born in the UK to kind of a, you know, a, a family that worked hard. But also on a day-to-day basis, I really don't have that much control. You know, the Stoics to some degree, not, not verbatim, talked about this trichotomy of control, as in the majority of life is kind of like a tennis match. Yes, you can choose to turn up, but you can't control how well your opponent has practiced. You can't control the weather mm-hmm. your shoe. There's yeah. so much in life you really can't control. And then Shakespeare, and it sounds so pretentious quoting Shakespeare, but Shakespeare <laughs> Shakespeare was clearly influenced a lot by Stoic writing. And something he said was, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And that is, a, is something that's really hmm. stuck with me, this idea that... Yeah. I, I can choose how I interpret this situation. I can wallow. Yeah. I can decide this is the worst thing to happen to anyone ever. Or I can decide that this is, as I described with Suki, our kitten, and my thought process there, I can just step back and think about everything to do with it and then almost make a rational conclusion on what has happened based on just my thoughts about it. And then go uh, go away with it, knowing I don't have much control over what's happened or what will going to happen, but I can choose how I interact with it in my head. You've said it so much more eloquently in a way that's <laughs> going to make you look so much more smarter than me. <laughs> because the modern day Shakespeare, Tony Robbins, says that nothing has any meaning except that which you give it, which sounds a little bit flippant until you realize how true that is. And it really applies to so many things. So... One of the big questions for me when lockdown started for, to myself was, and I, I didn't have the answer and I still don't necessarily have the answer, but the question's important. It was, how can I come out of this better than when I went in and better on every level, physically, spiritually, financially, like you know, mentally, whatever it is. So yeah, and I think also Viktor Frankl comes into this as well because the very famous quote uh, my favorite quote which i'm now going to misquote but between stimulus and response there's a pause and mm. in that pause lies all of our growth and freedom and you know it's all very well me saying that or shakespeare or tony robbins but when a guy who survived multiple holocaust camps says something like yeah. that it's in all of the horrors that, that then it really hammers home that there's probably a lot of truth in that mm. so I'm super conscious of where we are for time. A couple of quick questions to wrap up. I'm curious how you manage your use of technology and social media. I, I'm fighting a constant battle. Like I, I find myself every week or so Googling like basic phones. Like there's a few companies who are making like ultra simplistic phones now. And so yeah. I'm almost persuaded to get them. For a while, I tried a second iPhone. Like I use an old one. I quite like the Light phone, which is a guy in New York that I met a little. We were on a panel together, the CEO of Light phone. And it, all it can do is text phone and then the new version will have maps and music yeah. that's it and, and and it's a lovely design as well i think in america it has a lot of uh, providers have the ability yeah. so you can have two sim cards for no, yeah, yeah. Two SIM cards, which, that's the thing i don't want to pay for two plans <laughs> which, which would be wonderful whereas yeah. I, I the only thing that draws me off with that is i, I do still want people to be able to phone me if if needed mm. we have to change a sim card every moment but what i've tried to do now with my phone is number one i very much we try and limit it in the house i try and leave it on charge downstairs when we go to bed i try and limit the time it takes me to actually pick it up in the morning where possible i've i've worked on my home screen so my home screen only features apps that are tools so for instance uh, a voice recorder the tool to turn my lights on and off in the house and calendar. And then you have to swipe multiple times to get to anything that is remotely entertainment based. Uh, I would absolutely love to delete Instagram uh, off my phone. Yeah, me too. But, but I can't. But for I the can't. same reason you can't. I, I, I can't. I, 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 I think, yeah. oh, maybe I could just do it on my iPad and then, then it's, it would just be too much hassle. But that's what, the one social app it doesn't work for. Everything else you can get rid of. Yeah, but what I'm tr- what I've tried to do now is, as I said, limit what's available, and everything is in folders as well. Everything is t- so it's multiple clicks to actually get into something, and I've, I I try and really schedule my day increasingly so that this there is a particular time for an Instagram post. 
And if I know that that is when I'll do the post, it means I'm less likely to keep checking before and afterwards. Or yeah. this is the time where I'm allowed to check my emails. But I, I'm so passionate about it, but just not always that successful at it. But but I think part of it is you find methods that work for you. You know, for quite a while, mm-hmm. you know, the Apple phones have an ability to do a time limit, both a time limit and hours that you can use or not use. And that was wonderful until I just, for whatever reason, just stopped doing it. And every time I'd have to take multiple clicks to say, no, I do want to use it. Go away. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm trying my best. There's an app that I discovered, which I haven't delved into yet, called Freedom. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's on my home screen. Oh, you have that. Okay. So, and that apparently yeah. you can use it across multiple devices. So that is something I intend to explore this week. Yeah, the beauty of Freedom is... It's fundamentally a website and app blocker. But what makes it good, in my opinion, there's two things. And it's nothing to do with me. I don't get anything for saying this. I don't don't even know these folks. But firstly, it syncs across devices and it's very customizable. So you can decide that, okay, I, I want this set of settings that I can't go to these apps or whatever and these particular websites. And for me, it's the, all the ones where I waste the most amount of time and things that I have weaned myself off, but I used to go there to waste time when I was trying to, to not do something else that was uncomfortable or boring. So the first is it's very, very customizable. And once you set it, you can't actually override it if you get the paid version, which is a few dollars a month. Oh, that's and what I sec- Yeah, exactly. And, and the second bit is it's got this beautiful interface so that when you try and go to one of these things on your desktop, on your phone, whatever, it will flash up a beautiful image saying something like, you are free, you chose not to go here or go and do something important or, you know, these kind of encouraging things. And I go through phases with freedom where at the moment I don't need it much, but I use it to support habit change. And if I feel that my habits are slipping because it is a constant battle with technology, very, very smart people with very deep pockets who are manipulating our psychological vulnerabilities. So if I feel things are slipping, then I'll go through a phase of doing more freedom sessions. But I also have a couple of protocols, one of which is the last hour before I go to bed is is almost a blanket ban on anything through freedom. And the other one is when I'm spending a hour or two in the morning trying to get some deep work done, then I usually put freedom on as a bit of an override even though i don't tend to have my phone nearby mm. it's, yeah i need I, I i need to get on it but yeah. at the same time part Highly of me thinks it, yeah. i should try and build the willpower to not but then i think cal newport in deep, his book deep work says we just don't have the energy to resist distractions all day we just yeah, don't have. I agree with we that. We just don't have the capacity to constantly resist. It's just far better to make it, make it easier for yourself if you can. And, and especially if you're a little bit tired and a little bit stressed or a little bit overwhelmed, then it becomes so much more harder. So the way that I use it is a bit like you. I don't want to become dependent on it, but I use it to support my habit change. And then when it's at a place where I want it, then I'll stop using it for a while. But I, it's it's such a cheap subscription that that it's almost a no-brainer and that lives on my home screen it's that important to me to remember i have it and i've I've been slightly inspired as well by the minimalists who have that netflix documentary and have written some books Mm -hmm. and i'm doing one of their uh their things at the moment which is less related to technology but the idea of cleansing from distractions i'm trying to get Mm -hmm. rid of uh on the first day of the month, get rid of one item. On the second day of the month, two items from your house. On the 30th day, get rid of 30 items. But I'm, I'm exploring that for two reasons. Number one, to cleanse my, myself of stuff and just be more free. I, I, especially living in a one-bedroom house, it, I, I find it has a huge mental effect on me just having yeah. things everywhere and of course because we're trying to work from home we can't just leave stuff in a box we, stuff's out and filming stuff's out all the time uh but another part of me is exploring habit generation like every day can i really get rid of something well get rid of multiple things each day and i mean i'm gonna watch this one with interest i can't yes. i can't wait to check in with you on the 30th so because day, i'm just i'm curious yeah day one i got rid of an albert camo print that I bought and it just it's just clogging space upon this. I I love Albert still. Aren't you gonna have to think about this strategically? So like on day one, maybe get rid of one sock because on day thirty you'll have had to get rid of twenty nine things a day before and twenty eight exactly. things a day it before. It works that. out about five hundred items, I think. I guess slightly morbidly, I'm gonna have to get rid of a lot of cat stuff now. So that. <laughs> 
that's a win. That's a win in that sense. No, bless her. I suppose you can get strategic as well, and you can get things ready, and then it, th- th- then you've already got X amount towards tomorrow's count or whatever. Exactly, but it, it, that is something that more than many other things weighs down on me mentally. Having too many things around me, which is hard, but I look forward to living both a simpler life and a life with more space outside of London. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking what you're talking about. I'm okay with the physical, although I do also agree that the ability to accumulate stuff is unbelievable when it takes one click to accumulate it. Mm. However, for me, it's my digital environment. When my laptop screen is clean and organized and there's three or four main folders that I'm working from on there, I I just find mentally it has a different effect than when I've got all these different things open and all these tabs open and so on. So I've got into some good habits around that. But that's a different conversation for a different day. I want to close with two things. I want to ask you what mental well-being means to you. And uh, after that, we'll cover where we can find you. So mental well-being for me is just an ability to be calm despite the inevitable ups and downs of life. And there are lots and there will be lots and we are naive to think that there won't be. But I want an ability to be able to respond to that and be able to be steady and loving to those around me that need someone around them to be steady and loving. I love it. Adam, we'll share everything in the show notes, but can you tell us all the places we can find you and your various offerings online? Yeah, so adamhustler.com. There's no T in Hustler, but adamhustler.com has everything on there. And that includes retreats, online classes, teacher trainings, uh, and also links to thehustlers.com, which is where we have the online platform we talked about. We've also got a podcast, which is called Honestly Unbalanced, which talks to people in the wellness industry, not only about their hard path to success, but also how, in fact, they're not balanced most of the time. And uh, there's just constant effort in many in many ways. And then my Instagram is Adam Hustler, same for Twitter, etc. Great. And very quickly, two things. So... If you want to hear Adam interrogating me, then was it episode 10 or 11 of your podcast? I, I, this I is where my mind doesn't work. Numbers and names. <laughs> it was something around that. We'll stick it in the show notes. And your online platform, the membership platform, could you just t- tell us quickly if somebody's interested in that, what, what they would expect to find or get from yeah, that? Yeah, no, of course. So unlike many platforms, and I'm involved in other platforms where you know things are, for, are filmed formally on a set day, we are filming, my wife and I, everything from our living room but high quality so that is classes short classes long classes meditations my wife holly hustler as i mentioned does sound journeys uh, she's a wonderful singer and plays incredible instruments so they're on there as well so you're getting a lot for your money you get access to a back catalog and there's just more content every week so if you want things that are highly polished maybe not us but if you want things that are just lovely and just a constant supply of, of relatively good quality things with lots of heart, then thehustlers.com is, is where it's at. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Lovely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Honestly, I'm balanced.